We're going to uh, look at one more church tonight uh, in Revelations 2 and 3. We last week uh, covered the church at Ephesus, and uh, this week we'll be looking at the church in Smyrna. I like saying that. It's kind of strange. Smyrna. Smyrna. Yeah, so where did Myrna get her name? Do you have any idea? Named after somebody? Or I'll begin reading with verse 8 of uh, Revelation 2. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you, have, and, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. This is a very, very unusual letter to the church of Smyrna. Uh, last week we looked at an introduction to all of the churches and kind of gave an overview of all of them. Uh, recognizing, again, what, the reason that we're looking at, it, the, at Revelation is, again, I don't necessarily want, and I don't know why the Lord's done this, or maybe I do, I have no fascination with end time things. Uh, I can find interest in it, I can study it if I need to, but I have no fascination with it. So for God to turn me into, into this look in Revelation had to have an, a purpose, in, and as we've talked about several times now, the purpose was, you know, we teach the Revelation, the uncovering of something that's always been there was designed to be the beginning of our next encounter. So Revelation was not designed to tell us about what's going to happen out here alone. This Revelation was designed to bring an encounter right now. What does this mean to us right now? So that's what we have been looking at and and really looking for. Uh, The church in Smyrna represents a time period that was from about the second century, the beginning of the second century, to a time of about 313 uh, A.D. This was kind of the, the years that this church uh, was in existence. So we know uh, uh, these things are representing different time periods, but we also studied last week that God's instruction to John in this revelation of Jesus Christ was to make sure that every church got every letter. That has significance to it. If I was only going to send the letter to Ephesus and say that this is your letter, Smyrna, this is your letter, Laodicea, this is your letter, Thyatira, this is your letter, Philadelphia, this is your letter, then I could have understood that God was saying, I have a single message for these different time periods. But what does it mean for him to say, I want you to send every letter to every church? He's saying there's, there's a lesson in every one of these for you. You don't have the privilege because the church right now, our, in, in the, our day and time, is most closely associated with the church at Ephesus. Lost our first love. But when you, when you step back and realize, if we do that, we're missing the truth of, of the entire work that, that God gave in this revelation because we would miss the, the fact that the church at Laodicea, their problem was that they were filled, a church filled with men's opinion. I want to tell you, that is today's church. I had a, a young man in my office this morning. He came in at 10. I, we were supposed to be through by 11 because I needed to be in church. I needed to be in Leveland by 12. And I had several things to do in between. And I looked up and it was 12 minutes to 12. And I, and I said, you can keep sitting here if you like. i got to go. But this is a young man that I know very well. 
uh, been a Christian forever, uh, knows the Bible well, attends church regularly, and I'm sitting there, and he asks me a question. And it's like, okay, are, are you prepared for this answer? So here we are now, an hour and 52 minutes later, and I've, and I've, and I've, I've been just teaching him the Bible. And it's amazing to watch, these, watch this brain fire. It's like, whoa, wow, just over and over and over. Uh, to, to watch that excitement as truth was hitting him from one thing after the other. It's, you know, because he has learned so much of, man, of man's opinion, had had very little revelation. But he was truly, truly excited when, uh, when, when and, he, and, he, and he started making the connections. He said, well, is that why it says this? Is that why it says this? Yeah, it's the case. I was I was with a pastor uh, last night from five o'clock to seven o'clock, doing exactly the same thing. Been a pastor the biggest part of his life, and I, I'm sitting there talking, and it's like, man, I never, I never knew that. I never knew that. Never never saw that. It has nothing to do with me, but the fact that what happens when we switch from from men's opinion to revelation, we we got it. I mean, the scripture tells us. You know, when Jesus is asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? What did they come back with? They came back with opinions. Well, you're Elijah, you're this, or you're this. They were guessing. So that is now set in contrast to Peter, who says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. What happened when it switched from opinion to revelation? Yes, power. Everything changed when it moved from opinion to revelation. It will always will. It truly always will. You know, the churches that are described here is filled with the world. And again, chronic problem with the church because we have adopted so many things that the world said this is what this is the way we should do it. One again, one of the big ones is that many many pastors have become salesmen, and they stand in the pulpit trying to create a message, trying to adapt how they're shown, trying to create something that will be entertaining enough, spectacular enough, and that will catch people's attention so that next week they'll come back. And God warned us of this when he said, you know, there's only one seed. Now, there's many types of soil, but there's only one kind of seed. Modern Christianity has said, there's only one kind of soil, so I've got to really adapt this seed. If this seed doesn't work and it it doesn't hit the soil right, change the seed. Change the, change the message. Change the way we give the message. If the soil won't take it, change the seed. No, one seed, many soils, never change the seed. So there have been a lot of the world that, that has been brought in. The church at Smyrna was, again, unusual among the seven. First of all, the, the thing we recognize is even Jesus says, I know some things about you, but he doesn't have that phrase in here, says, and I, but I only have one thing against you. You notice in this letter, he has nothing against his church. He has no criticism of them. He has no harsh word for them, no correction for them. So we begin the letter to, to Smyrna from a different place. We know with that that there's not a harshness in God's voice toward them. He's not trying to correct them. He's trying to do something, to do something else. And we'll see very quickly what the something else is when we, when we begin to take this apart. <clears throat> this is a church... You can read it. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty and blasphemy. I know you. I know that you suffer. This was this was God's message to them. I see your suffering. I see your hurt, and I want to say some things to you that will counter the hurt that you're feeling. 
counter the suffering that you're going through. I want to say some things. So when we begin to recognize what is said to them in this revelation to them, that what he's trying to do is to say, I see you and everything I'm saying is supposed to be a weight that will counter the heaviness that you're feeling. He doesn't say, I'll take away the heaviness. He said, but what I'm going to tell you will give you the assurance that no matter how heavy this is, that what I'm going to give you is greater than that weight and the heaviness that you're feeling. We need, we need pretty quickly to understand the relevance of that. Uh, we haven't really had to suffer much. Certainly some more than others, but we haven't in this life suffered a great deal. That day may still come, and we'll, we'll, we'll see. Because, uh, you know, Amanda prophesied here the last time she was here in July, a year and a half ago, of, of what was going to happen in America, and that uh, some very dynamic things would happen. So, you know, we certainly shouldn't be surprised or alarmed uh, because the words that he spoke to this church in Smyrna, he speaks to us today. So what did he say trying to create this balance against the, the suffering that they were going through? So let's look, let's look first of all at verse 8. <clears throat> and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. So he starts by introducing himself to this church by some powerful pictures, some very powerful words. He says, I want you to know that the one speaking to you about you is the one who was the first and the last. What is the encouragement from that? He says, I am the God who was and I am the God who will be. What's the comfort that they get in that? He's been there. He, is, he was there then, he is here now, and will never find a day when he will not be. Again, relevance to us, same message. You'll never find a day when I as God, the one who was, the God who is, and the God who always will be. And I want you to take comfort because I promised you I will never leave you and I will never forsake you because the God that I am says I was there and I will be there. How comforting it is, especially when I watch people at the last days of their life. They don't really want much. What do they want? They want someone there. And they want somebody holding their hand. They want, that, they want that connection. Because they want the assurance in the middle of this question that they're now li- living through. They've never been at this point in their life before. They've never been in these last days before. <clears throat> and they want someone there, if it's at all possible, and they would prefer that you touch them. Because even when they're sleeping, they can, they can stir and know that, that you're there. Powerful. That reality of presence. And so Jesus starts in this message to them. I want you to know who's speaking to you. I'm the one who was, and I'm the one who will be. And then he says the next thing about about this. The one which was dead and is alive. Okay, what's the encouragement to Smyrna? Yeah, and no matter what your problem is, it's not going to be worse than that. You may have this one. You You may die. You may have the same challenge. But he says, I want you to know that that whatever your problem is, the ability to deal with it still rests in a, in a situation where I was dead and, and I'm alive again. There will never be anything that happens to you in terms of time or in terms of depth that I will not be there. No problem bigger this way or more dynamic this way. And he introduces himself by the very words that will bring encouragement to them and, and, and set this frame because... You know, most of ministry, especially what I do in my office, 
most of ministry, I, I don't have the power to change the circumstances somebody brings in. I can't make their husband love them. I can't, I can't make their child come home. I can't, I, I can't change that. What I can do is help them to take this, to, to turn this picture around, take the back off of it, pry the little things in there that are holding the picture in the frame, this black and dark and heavy frame, not changing the picture at all, take that picture out, bring it across here, and put it behind this frame that's now white and bright. And it's amazing how different the picture looks when you reframe it. And most of ministry is helping somebody reframe the picture. Because they come in believing, I'm powerless to change it. I'm powerless to deal with it. I don't, I'm not sufficient to deal with it. When they sit and they, and, and they expose it to the Holy Spirit, not to me, but when they expose it to the Holy Spirit, He will begin to tell them options that they did not see. Hope that they did not have. Opportunity that they had, that they had given up. He reframes that same story, doesn't touch a single thing, reframes it, creates hope, creates opportunity, gives them power, puts it in this frame, and it's amazing what had a difference when they leave my office because the picture has been reframed and I haven't touched a single thing. I haven't changed a brush stroke in the, in the picture that's, that was in the frame. What's God doing here? What's Jesus' message doing? It's helping them reframe their suffering. Because you can imagine what the, uh, we'll get into a little bit what they were getting, what they were going through, what was actually occurring in this church, what they were, what what we were actually having to deal with, and for God to come and say, guys, let me let me take that out of that frame, let me put it in this one, and let's start with this. The frame that will cause this to be to, to look differently is for you to know that I am the God who always will be. I'm the God who understands the worst of the worst in terms of challenges that you'll face. And I was victorious over it, so there will not be anything that happens to you that victory cannot come. He's reframing the story. I can tell you, we need, as ministers, to be ready always to help somebody reframe a picture. And if they see hope in us, if, they, if my countenance doesn't take on their countenance, and, and I'm sitting there as sad as they are, or broken as they are, if, if, you know, again, I've shared with you many times, somebody comes in and starts telling me the hard story of their life, and I'll start laughing. And it kind of always startles them. It's like, why are you laughing? I'm kind of pouring my heart out here. And I tell them every time, it's because I can see hope coming. I can see salvation coming. I can see deliverance coming. Because I want them to know that what God is hearing them say, already being met with the answer. Because I want hope to rise in them. If they don't see hope in me, if they don't see a reality in me, then they won't, it'll be much harder to get them to believe that anything different can possibly happen. Okay, on to, uh, well, just, just one relevant truth that just kind of is a summary out of verse 8. Suffering within God's design. Now, I'll tell you, sometimes we create our suffering. When we choose to live outside of what God has intended, we can create our own suffering. And I can't assign that to him, and I'm, I can't even say it's valuable. I, I will tell you that he will use it. If we'll hand it to him, he will use it to our good. But there is suffering designed at times within his story. We're not immune to the suffering that, that, we can, we, that our, our life in him can, can expose us to. But he wants us to know that, that the, the suffering within his design and within his plan does not stem from punishment. Because we have a tendency very quickly to think if I'm suffering, I'm being punished. A lady in my office this morning, she said, she started by saying, do you, do you believe there's a purpose for everything? I said, 
tough question. A typical Christian answer is, yeah, there's purpose in everything. And I said, I just can't say that. Because sometimes we create the situation and the circumstances and there was no purpose in it. We just did it. Now, he'll use it. But we did it. We created it. And it wasn't because he planned it. It wasn't because he, it was what he wanted us to do. We created the circumstances we find ourselves in. He'll, he will work in it. He'll take what we've done and he'll turn it into his glory if we'll let him. And, but, but she wanted to know. She said, am I being punished for something? And I said, oh, absolutely not. She said, I keep feeling like the things I'm doing, he stays mad at me. I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because she couldn't understand what she was going through. So everything she was going through was like God was punishing her. Like, I said, ma'am, all I can tell you is the answer is absolutely not. And I began to explain to her why not. But it's, that's, a, that's, that's not even unusual for someone to think, if I'm suffering, then, then there's got to be punishment connected with it. Not always true. It's not always true. These people were not being punished in Smyrna. Their suffering was not connected to disobedience and correction. It was a part of the story. It comes from God's wisdom to know what we, what we need to know next. Because, again, I don't, know that, I don't know the capability of a rope until I pull that rope as hard as I can pull it. And I want to tell you, if, if I do that, you know, if you've ever been on, on one end of a rope, you're in a tug-of-war. That looks like a lot of fun until you get to doing it. And then your hands are on fire, and you get through, and they're still on fire, and you wonder if the skin's ever going to grow back. You know, getting those that last an hour, and you're just you're, you're dying. You're kind of laying on one end anymore, hoping they don't muster strength before you do. But, but you, you can test. There, there's a testing piece of this, but there's, there, there will be suffering in the testing. <clears throat> so to verse 9, he said, I know. In every one of the, in every one of the letters, he says, I know. So, so he has walked among the candlesticks. We learned that in chapter 1. He walked, he walked among the candlesticks. And he, and he walked among the messengers of each of these churches. Because we're told very specifically in verse 20 of chapter 1 what these candlesticks are and who these messengers are, who these angels are. So we're told that. So, so Jesus has walked among these candlesticks. And now he's giving this report to these seven churches. And he said, I've reviewed and I know. So to Smyrna, he's saying, I know. After this review, after seeing you, this, these, this is what I know. So again, it's found in every letter. He knows all about their suffering. And if not removed, we must consider that it is profitable for us. Think about that. If the, if the suffering is not removed, again, we have to know, and this, this is just, sometimes it's not easy. We have to know that what's happening to us is not, it's not him trying to correct us. You know, many years when Kendall was here, he came into my office and he said, Randy, I said, something's going on. He said, I'm teaching and, and it's, it's reaching kids and I'm watching these lives being altered and, and exchanged for, for God. He said, and I'm feeling nothing on the inside. There's no excitement about it. And I said, I need, let me ask you this question first. Is there sin in your life that is, un, un, that is unconfessed? And he said, you know, I started there and he said, there's not a single thing that I can say right now that is in my life that is unconfessed before God. I said, then he's hiding from you. On purpose, not as punishment, but to draw you into something deeper. There's times when God, in, in the hiddenness of God, he will not be as present in our soul, in the things that we think and feel. Because he, if, if, he, if, he, if he stays away from that, he can pull us spiritually into something. I told Kendall, I want you to you know, find a place, get you a piece of paper, come with expectant faith, and ask God three questions. And, and, and wait till you get answers. Question one, 
God, what is there about me that you want me to know right now? Second question, God, what is there about you that I need to know right now? And the third one is, am I in your will? Am I where you want me to be? So this was right before the roughneck days out at the park. I remember that because that's the day he showed me the paper. He came and laid right here. And he said it was so strange because he said in this quiet room with nothing going on, he said it was unbelievable the noise that he kept hearing. And he said it sounded like wings as something would take off. And he said, I, I lay there in this, just enough light to write. And he said, I asked the first question. And he said, very quickly, the answer, the Lord answered and said, Kendall, you're, you're too loud. And he said, it just hit him. He said, I go in the house, I turn on music. I'm never quiet. I have no quietness around me. And, and he said, well, God, what is there about you? And he said, I didn't have to wait any time. And God says, I love to whisper. I'm not going to shout. And he said, am I, am I in your will? And God said, if you're ever not, I'll, you, I'll let you know. And he had this on a little piece of paper about, about this long and about this wide that he had brought in here. And God had answered those questions. Because what God was trying to do in this time of silence was to draw him into something that he needed to ask. Something he, he could not have discovered. In his, in his body or in his soul, he had to discover it in the spirit. So God will do that from time to time. In our, and it, it's happened in my life. You know, when suddenly what I was supposed to be feeling, I didn't feel anymore. And I recognized it wasn't punishment. He was drawing me into something. We get this teaching from the road to Emmaus. Because if Jesus it said, you know, they were, they were confused and they were sad, thinking and feeling. So we know they were processing his death in the soul. So here's Jesus now coming along beside them. What would have happened if he would have said, hey guys, it's me? What would have happened to their sadness? It would have turned to joy. What is their confusion? When they cared, he's alive, here he is. But it says as he walked with them, he didn't let them know. He hid himself from them so that he, said, he began with the law of Moses and he taught them all things. Why? Why was that necessary? Because if he said who I am, he said they'd run off happy. The, the moment to teach them, to draw them, would have been missed. So God hides and sees them. To draw us into something so that when he tells us hey, it was me, then we're like, wow, I, I get it. So don't let, don't let suffering be misunderstood. Once you've asked this question, God, is this because I've done something wrong? He will tell you. And if that answer comes back no, then you recognize that this suffering that won't go away was designed to be profitable for me. Conceptually, terribly hard to consider. But that we, we've all done it as parents. We've let our kids walk through some difficult things because we realize what they're going to face next. Won't, they won't get it if they don't walk through this right now. If I remove these tough circumstances, if I remove the anguish, then they won't be prepared for what's coming next. I mean, if, you, if I could have bought it to buy peace in our house when our kids were in high school taking math, if I could have bought math answers and math homework, and someone to come take their test to give me peace in my house, I might have done it. Why, if you had the money, why would you not? Because this anguish that we're watching, that we're all living, this misery that we're all living, is supposed to prepare them for something else. I did finally with Jay when, in about the fourth grade, when his math kind of surpassed my capability. Not really, a little bit later than that, about the ninth grade, like tenth grade, like, man, man, I can't help you much. So he was just in anguish all the time. I had a good friend whose son was a math whiz. You, you remember Ray Campbell? Ray's son, Wes, Wesley, was a genius in math. So I, I asked Ray, because I asked him, I said, what textbook do they have? He went to Monterey, and he showed me, he said, that's the same one. And I said, what would he charge me to do all the homework in that book? And I paid him. He just did enough to stay ahead, 
and Jay never saw it, but it gave me a way to check Jay's homework. So, we, you know, I, we weren't sitting there saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. We actually had something to go by that would allow us to say, Jay, you missed it, and you missed it here. And I told Wesley, I said, you can't, you can't take any shortcuts, I've got to sit off. But we could, what it did was, if, you, if, if they had 20 or 25 problems, we would look at them all and say, some of these are wrong, maybe a bunch of them. When I finally had something that was true, I said, you just missed these two. What a great relief. So I almost bought it and paid for it, but not quite. <clears throat> Do what? Yeah. <laughs> oh, we were up at 11, 12 o'clock at night trying to get math homework. So. Mm. No, that's, that, that anguish had a, had a purpose, and so did ours. So does ours. If we don't suffer, we will be ill-prepared. That's why we lift weights when we're, when we're young. It's because of putting that muscle to the test, putting it under strain, will cause it to be stronger and prepared for what's coming next. We're wired that way. <clears throat> so he knew all about their suffering, and he, and he wasn't going to remove it. He knew it was profitable for some point forward. Historically, we are told that Smyrna was a very, very rich city. This is not a situation or circumstance because there was, they, were, they were a poor church in a poor town. This was a wealthy city and had a, and had a large number of Jews there who were Jews by heritage. But we also know that the reason that they were suffering, the poverty that we, we read about in, 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 in verse 9, that there was tribulation, poverty, and words of blasphemy. That was what was happening to them. And, we, and they were in poverty because when they followed Jesus, they lost their jobs. There was, they were under direct attack because of their faith. It wasn't because, again, it wasn't a poor church in a poor town. It was a, it was a punished church by the community because they didn't want them there. So there was great wealth in, in a church that was being targeted because of their faith. They lost, they lost their jobs. Uh, they were robbed, blatantly robbed. And so the poverty was a result of their treatment because of their faith. So the, again, the suffering came in three types. It's first of all, it says tribulation, pressure coming from the outside, poverty. You know, poverty alone is not, it's not bearable, but it's doable. But when you add poverty to tribulation, it's almost unmanageable because there's, you're not sitting there saying, well, well, just like, you know, I talked to my mom and dad said we didn't have anything, but nobody else did either. So it wasn't, you know, they, they found solace in the fact that in the, in, the, in, the, in the part of the Great Depression that they could remember that, yeah, we didn't have anything, but nobody else did either. So, you know, they, they weren't living in that comparison. Uh, but they also weren't being, they weren't being persecuted. You add persecution onto the suffering that they were always already going through, and it becomes difficult. So, you know, Smyrna is it's the same word as the word myrrh, this healing bomb. So God's looking at them saying, you blessed people, the purest but the poorest, and he was so pleased with them. No correction. The words of blasphemy is, is, what, is what defames us. It's, what, it's, it's, that, it's a personal attack. So again, not only poverty, not only tribulation, but, the, but there were words of blasphemy. There was a mocking, the mocking of who they were, the mocking of their faith. The, the, so you know, now we're talking about, again, in, in terms of relevance, you probably couldn't get any lower or more burdened than they were. And part of the problem was that most of the mocking was coming from the Jews. Because that, you know, that's what he says in, in that verse, if I read it right. 
uh, I know thy works, and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So he's saying where this is coming from is among the people who should be the most compassionate. It's coming from the people who should be the most understanding, who know God, who are supposed to have something in them, supposed to have a connection with God. But it's obvious that they are Jews by heritage, but they have not, and even in, even in their Judaism, they have not found the reality of God even in doing that. Or they could not be the people who are tormenting you the way that they are. So here's a couple of relevant things to us now. The danger of the, of the mocking voice is powerfully real and has to be guarded against. And we say, I don't hear it. I don't hear the mocking voice. Any time that you are prompted to do something, any time your freedom in God is limited or inhibited, I will promise you there's a mocking voice. I'd love to raise my hands, but I can't. Why? What's the mocking voice saying? You'll look silly or... Any time that we lose the freedom that God has given us, it's because there's a mocking voice that says, this is what will happen if you ever express that freedom. So it's much more present than we think, and it should be resisted for ourselves and for others, to pray for others who who are battling this mocking voice. Our victory cannot be gained by retort. We can't come back and just say, we, we can't come back and use more words, but it must be found in, in his abilities to secure us and defend us. I can't come back and, and, and defend myself. All my defense to Satan is going to sound, it's, it's, going, it's, going to, it's going to be laughable for me to try to defend myself. Who do I stand behind? Who is my attorney? Who is my advocate? It's the Holy Spirit. I don't, you know, I don't have to take it, but I don't have to fight back myself because he is my defense. He is our security. He's the one who stands, and he's trying to tell them this. The second relevant piece of this one is, is please note that this seems to be an issue where people are not Jews, but are claiming to be so. I can tell you, and, and, and I, I will frame this carefully, because I, I don't deal with a lot of this. I'm talking about it on a very small scale. I'm never criticized by the world as a pastor. Never. It's other Christians. If I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it from other Christians. The world doesn't care. They never come to me and say, I heard you did this, or I heard you said this, or I heard you teach this. I never hear from the world. You see, in this church in Smyrna, it wasn't, it wasn't the people of Smyrna that were doing it. It was the Jews, this large number of Jews who were likely very wealthy, that are, that are looking at this small group of people who are now have this faith in Jesus Christ, and they're mocking them. So the mocking voice is coming from people who should know better and who should be accepting, and who should be loving, simply because they know God. So again, the relevance is that much of the church is filled with those who say they are Christians, but are still very, very powerfully controlled by the law. This young man that was in my office this morning made the statement, said, we were in our Bible study, and said we're trying to get people to commit, to sign up and commit to read their Bible every day. I said, you think that's a good idea? And he said, well, you know, I think so. And I said, do you think God expects us to read our Bible every day? He said, well, how else are we going to know? I handed him a Bible and said, would you show me that? This expectation that we read our Bible every day? Because I said, I'm failing it miserably. It's probably not good, good news for you all to know that when I, on Sunday morning I have to go find my Bible. Where did, where did I read that thing last week? I'm terrible at it. 
Because I have to wait for the anointing. I have to wait for him to speak to me. Because just going and reading the Bible, I can gain some stuff. But for it to become life, he's got to do it. He's got to be the one who speaks. And I heard the other day, and I've said it before, but, you know, the Trinity in the church was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. Chunk the Holy Spirit. Don't need it. Got the Bible right here. A Bible that the New Testament church didn't have, we lean on heavily, and the spirit that they did have, we don't want. He said, is that why this has always been so hard? And I said, yeah, you're trying to follow a rule. Read your Bible in obedience. Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. It was just like this light bulb went off. He said, so liberating. I don't have to do this. I said, yeah, isn't it great? That you're not making God happy every time you pick up the Bible every day. And, and he's looking down and saying, well, man, that's a good kid. Look at him reading his Bible. I hope not. Yes. <laughs> We're trained us. Yeah. Every time you go to camp, you know, get the same message. Go home. Get a, have a quiet time. Hated that. Man, it was awful at quiet time. My quiet time turned into, what am I going to do today? And, you know, I, while I'm confessing, I, you know, I probably just, you all know, know this, shared this before, but I cannot pray silently. When something tragic will be going on, there's people to sign up for 30 minutes to come up here and pray for 30 minutes. A wonderful idea, I guess. I'd sign up good for about three minutes, and I'd sit here for 27 waiting for somebody else to come. Now, I can pray out loud, but when I start praying to myself quietly, praying to God silently, I come to realize I'm suddenly thinking about dinner. I hadn't said anything to God in a good while. What happened to me? I shared that with somebody Monday, and I said, Man, I'm so relieved. Like I just thought I was broken. People can do it if they're very sincere about it. It's like, I can't do it. And somewhere God gave me permission to let it be okay. He's the one who created the wiring. But when you learn to walk every day in this listening relationship to him, so that when he speaks, you hear him, you realize I have now understood what it means to pray always. It's a condition of a relationship between me and him. That when he speaks, I hear him. Even in the busiest part of my day, if he speaks, I'll get it. And he knows my heart, so I'm talking to him, expressing myself to him. When there's nothing going on except for the fact he has this innate ability because he is God to know what's on my heart, to know what I'm going through. So the teachings have been Christianized in church with no Christ. We're notorious for it. And again, it's born out of the mentality of doing instead of the reality of being. And I'm not going to go through and teach all that again, but it's still very much in play. Verse 10. Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, for you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. One of the things I need to back up and say is this place where, in verse 9, you're rich. He says, all this suffering, but you're rich. And it's not just a rhetorical statement. It's not just him trying to make them feel better. It was a powerfully true statement that the rich in faith and the rich in love. When I was talking to Brenda Diggs on Monday, and we were talking about our families, and and I said, you know, there were such hard days. And she said, you know, you're right. But she said, me and Sherry Bob would look at your family. And because of what your mom did, she said, "You, you always seem to be blessed, always seem to be loved. And she said it was just amazing. And it's like, I didn't feel it inside. I mean, being a part of it kind of had a different opinion. But her looking in, because she heard me say I was poor. And she said, but you always seem so rich. That's what she's talking about. In money. But in the abundance of what we needed, the abundance of what was greater, we always seemed to be rich. Fear not the things which you're about to suffer. Fear is the source of defeat. We know it. If God is overcome and simply not coped, we 
two, because of his presence, have already overcome as well. That's a fact we have to establish, not an opinion we hold. Whatever's coming at me, I'm already victorious because he's already overcome it. That's a position that we hold. It's a standing that we have. Because if I'm waiting for stuff to come to me and say, am I going to be capable, then I wonder. But because he says, I've already overcome it. I didn't come to cope with it. I've already come to overcome it. What could come that God is not already bigger? And he's trying to give them that assurance. He says, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. When we know him, we can resist him. There's great concern among churches today that we do not recognize Satan nor his work. I can tell you that is so powerfully true. Who would profit for the churches to teach that there is a sinner's prayer? To get us to reduce to the place where we would think that you can be saved simply by saying a prayer or repeating it after somebody else. Who profits in that? Satan does. And we don't even recognize that it was him. To teach a group of people that you can live for Christ. It's in songs, it's in writings, you can go anywhere, and that's the common teaching. What are you doing for Christ now? What have you done for Christ lately? What have you done for him today? And to recognize, as plain as it can be read in the New Testament, I, I went through this on Sunday morning with the Sunday school class, 18 times, and I gave them all the scripture, 18 times we read for him. And not a single one of those is an instruction to do something for him. So if we're teaching something that's not true, what do we call that? It's heresy. To teach something that is not true is heresy. And it's done pulpit after pulpit after pulpit with pastors saying, you need to go for him, you need to serve him. Lie. He went to great lengths to say, no longer a servant but a son. His salvation was never intended to create servants. For us to teach that we're supposed to be servants. Who profits in that? Satan does. Why? Because a servant will look at the, the riches of the, of the master, the houses and the land and the cattle, and conclude what? He will never give it to me. What will a son know, on the other hand? It's already mine. We saw that in the prodigal son. What do we have? We have a son who went away and wasted everything, and when he comes back, he's established as a son. He tries to come back as a servant. His father won't let him. No, get the shoes, get the coat, get the ring, kill the fatted calf. Our son's home. And then in that evening, the older son comes home. And he won't go in. He's mad. So the father comes out to him and says, what's wrong? And he says, all these years I have served you. And you never would even let me kill a goat to have with my friends. And the father's stunned. He says, you've always been with me. Every Thing I have is yours. You want to look at the difference? What's happening in church today? We were saved to be sons. And here's this one that never left, very faithful to his father. And he says, I've served you, and you never would even give me a goat. We have churches full of people who are trying to serve God, hoping they'll get a goat. Failing to recognize that the reason he came to redeem us was so that we would no longer be servants but sons. And I ask this Pretty simple. If I want somebody to work with me and they will match me step for step, I will go get my son. Because he will serve greater out of the relationship than anyone would be as a servant. Well, how critical it is because what we're reducing this to is he came to die to create a servant. How awful. And, and to say that his redemptive work was to create a servant? 
No, his redemptive work was to create a son. Galatians 4, I mean, you can't miss it in Galatians 4. It is no different than anything else that we receive of God. It has to be received. He's a father who gives gifts. He's not going to stand with our arms behind our back trying to get us to say something or confess something or believe something. He's a benevolent father who gives us gifts. So when, he, when truth is offered like that, when, that's revelation. When, when that gets unfolded, that's a truth that's always been there. But when it gets revealed to us, I'm in that moment, have to process, what did I just see? And we either accept it or reject the gift that he offer, is offering. It's always the gift. It's no different than the fact when he, when he makes this statement, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was a universal offer. Universal gift given. Anybody. Whosoever. And then in John chapter 1 we read, But to those who would receive, he gave the power to become the sons of God. Universal gift had to be received. To all believers, he gives the Holy Spirit. So we get this thing, well, when I'm saved, I got the Holy Spirit. It was given to you. That does not mean at all you receive the Holy Spirit in that moment. It still has to be received. One of the churches where I was the interim pastor, that was Jan's mom's church down near La Mesa, down the country. And they had about 25 people that came. And the average age had to be over 80. And I started teaching this. And I didn't have a moment of resistance from anybody. Because I taught them body, soul, and spirit first. And it's like, oh, man. I don't, because I had to lay foundation. Some foundation before, before I could, could say some of these other things to them. And I taught them. For two years, I taught them. I didn't have anybody come and say, could you explain? You know, I, I did have them say, can you explain this again? You know, that Adam is both male and female. That stuns them. But they, were, they stayed open and they listened. And now the pastor who's there is a spirit-filled man. Who came when I left? He came. Dennis Adams. He's a remarkable pastor. And that little church sitting out in the country is the only growing church in that association down there. And you walk in, and there's this family of Mennonites sitting there, and there's another family of Mennonites sitting over here. They don't care what the background is, what the history is. They know that when they walk in, they're loved. And Dennis and his wife, man, it just pours out of them. It's remarkable. At times, I'm jealous when they have vacation Bible school. It's like it used to be here. My sister-in-law heads it up, and I mean, you don't say no. Every woman in there is signed up for vacation Bible school. And they go for training, and they're ready. Because they know they're going to have 150 kids show up in that little bitty space, and they have to be ready for them. But I mean, they, it's everybody, there's no, there's no no's. It's like, yes, sign me up. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And so it's, it's, it's a remarkable little church. But for two years, I taught them. Jan's Uncle Travis, you'd, you'd think if I was ever going to get a question... That he would be the guy. Perfect. Just loved it. Loved learning. It was a remarkable two years. He says that you're going to have tribulation ten days. And most teachers teach that that meant that there's going to be ten periods of time that you're going to suffer. I read it a little bit differently because to me ten, symbolic part of ten, it's like it's numerical completion. It basically means all. Ten days means all the days. So to me, what he was telling him is that your life is going to be defined by this suffering. But there's great purpose in it. The devil's about to cast them into prison so that they can be tried, resist him. When we don't recognize that it's Satan, we have a tendency to murmur against the people around us. If we don't correctly identify the enemy, it's going to cause us to assess people around us. And the murmuring will always bring more damage than it should because we murmur against men and women and Satan goes unnoticed. The great reality is that nothing should cause us to murmur 
but all this should cause us to hate him if we truly know that it's him. He says, be thou faithful unto death with the real possibility for them of being killed. But with a certainty of, of life, we no longer need to fear the loss of life. It's a hard place to come to. And most of us sitting in this room, I, I know by the testimonies that I've heard, even mine, I have no fear of dying. I may have a little bit of fear how it happens, but face death to be with God, none. I know, you know in watching Bubba walk through it, it, it wasn't the sadness of death, it was leaving. It was who you're leaving behind. That's so much harder. The thought of being, of, of being at that moment and being with the Father, most of us have that very, very settled. I, I, that's not something that we fear at all. He says, I will give them a crown of life. Unto death means they love God greater than they fear death. But then he says, to those who do this, uh, I will give the crown of life. Now, please remember, this is a Stephanos crown. There's a lot of teaching about this. this. When you look up this word crown in the dictionary, in Strong's or anywhere else, this is not the crown that a king would wear. This is a Stephanos crown. It's the crown that at the end of a race. It was the laurel wreath that they would place on their head for the winners of the race. Because it represents the accomplishment of the Christian life. And, the, and here, what, the, what, what was going to get them that crown was the suffering that they endured. He said, I will give you this crown of life, the Stephanos crown. I will put the laurel wreath on your head. And what are we going to do with it? What does the scripture in Revelation say we're going to do with that crown? We're going to let it to be to Jesus. Why? Why would I surrender my crown? I earned it. Not ours. Who did it all? He did. He deserves he deserves what he gave us for us to very much in turn to take that off of our head and say, it would not have been possible. There would have been no victory. I would not have run the race well. There would be no crown if it weren't for you. It was surrender that crown. Every ounce of acknowledgement, every ounce of praise that we could possibly get for the race that we run, we will surrender freely and we'll lay it at the feet of Jesus. Because we know none of it is possible without him. Verse 11, I'll wrap this up. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he that overcomes shall not be heard of the second death. Second death is a strange piece of information. We understand it pretty generally that we can go to Revelation 20 and 14 and 15 and get this picture that says those who do not know God through Jesus will suffer the second death. The second death speaks very specifically to those non-believers who have been in torment already. Notice the second death. What happened to non-believers at their first death? They suffered. I don't teach that non-believers go to hell. I teach that they go to Hades, because that's what the scripture says. But because they're already separated from God, they're already in anguish. And the scripture records that. But it does at the end in Revelation 20 that then that Hades, death and hell, that word hell is Hades, Death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. So what happens at the second death? They suffer. Eternal suffering now. Not anguish. Eternal suffering. But that's the final outcome. They suffer the reality twice. For us as believers, we may experience the first death, but we, we certainly don't suffer the second one. So the last relevant truth about this, a defeated Christian, and I know this is going to strike you strange, we're dealing with somebody who's saved, but... They've given up. They're not walking. They're not following. They're not listening. We're out. It's a Christian who is unwilling to live in him, but probably because they live too long trying to live for him. 
to let the Holy Spirit do in them and through them what only the Holy Spirit can do. So they tried to do it and walk the disappointment, walk the defeat, walk the frustration. And I would say that for most, that, that represents most believers. There's not many believers who walk in victory. We, I had this conversation with this young man today talking about, he had heard somebody say something about how you knew the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, I, I get it. I understand what you're saying, that this will be the case. But I said, what happened when Jesus received the Holy Spirit at his baptism? What happened? Immediately, he began, there began to be an evidence of supernatural reality in his life because the Holy Spirit was allowing him to function in relationship to his Father in terms of obedience. And by that obedience, the Father would only release supernatural things. You're not going to get God to do something that's not supernatural. We remove a lot of what's supernatural by, the, by simple explanation. But when somebody's healed, even by medicine, could that have happened without a supernatural reality? I don't believe so. We think supernatural is only when we can't explain it. I can't explain it now. I can't explain why this medicine that they put in me, suddenly I felt better. I can't explain that. But God designed me, designed us, so that we can heal. And if he's the healer, there's no explanation for healing, except he, he has so managed us, manufactured us, established us, so that we can heal. What happens when, when I cut my hand? When I was six, I thought, certainly I'm big enough to cut this watermelon. My sister Donna disagreed. So she pulled the butcher knife through my hand. And I was upset. <laughs> Something about this is not right. I'm bleeding. So my mom wrapped it up and ran me over to Iona Bilbrey's house, because that's where you always had to go. You know, if you, she's a, she was the nurse we knew. So we went over to Iona's house, and she said, oh, I need stitches. So I went and got stitches in my finger. I still have a scar from that reality. If you live in him, you are very willing, not maybe desirous of it, but you're very willing to walk into suffering that most of us avoid it on earth. But for those people who have lived, accepted Jesus Christ, but are living defeated, they will not receive that Stephanos crown. It is a gift given for a race well run. So for them, they will be hurt. When? During the millennial reign. There's things there that we, that we know that are going to be true. Because what happens in the millennial reign is going to be a direct reflection of what we're doing in him right now. And for those who have grown weary in their well-doing and broken, will they be in the new heaven and the new earth? Absolutely. But they're going to miss a lot. Because the choice right now to live in the poverty when we were designed to live in riches, to live in brokenness when we were designed to live in fullness and victory, the price will not be paid, but there will be suffering in the first death though there will be no suffering in the second. There's a lot in that. Lord, we thank you that we can be together tonight and just open your word. It fascinates me all the time. I live in amazement at what's here. Things I've never seen, things that just you just bring that are brand new. And I thank you, Lord, for it, that your promise that you made me many years ago is that if I would stay open, you'd never stop teaching me. And I thank you, Lord, that you have so honored that truth. I live in fascination, true fascination of all the things you have revealed that have allowed me to step into the next encounter. And I thank you for it. I thank you that we can, we can be here together tonight and just love as a family the opportunity to be in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.